Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. On this show, we break down some of the most controversial, complex, and even polarizing topics facing our society. We use honest, good-faith analysis, backed by research, to form our conclusions. We promise to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving you our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show up sometimes, but the goal of this show isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics and present the most truthful information available so that we can discuss and address these issues in a thoughtful and beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on the show and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable, maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Okay, well, welcome back to this week's episode of Fireside Breakdowns, in which I forced John to play my favorite game show. He's been very busy with work this week, so I took the lead on this episode, and I decided yesterday that I was going to turn this into an episode of Jeopardy, minus the buzzers and any actual money, of course. Yeah, uh, we would have to have money to spend. Um, our plan... <laughs> Our plan for this episode was to do a little discussion on a few concepts and terms we've seen in the news this week, um, and they don't often get explained. Um, they're kind of just thrown around, and everyone listening or reading is expected to know what they mean or put it together using context. Um, so we wanted to explain what each one means and give some reference points about why it's important to current events. Exactly. But then I got to thinking... What was my favorite way to learn new concepts and test my knowledge in school? And that was with a rousing game of Jeopardy. Of course, I dominated the classroom because I am a complete nerd. It is no secret that trivia is my sport of choice. I have a favorite Jeopardy champion, and I always have very strong feelings about contestants' choices during daily doubles. And I'm in charge this week. So, the category is in the news. Why don't you go ahead and choose a question? I will choose a question. I would also like to point out that pretending that you're not in charge every week is a little bit misleading, ma'am. Okay, but I was like in charge this week. Like, like, what, like, like I was the whole boss. The whole boss. So, the whole enchilada. The whole All enchilada. right. In the news for 200, please. Okay. This is an unofficial name for the short legislative period that takes place after midterm elections, but before the new congressional session begins in January. What is lame duck? <laughs> that is correct. The term lame duck goes back to the colonial era when it was used to refer to failing traders and businessmen who were unable to fund their enterprises and pay their shipping costs. Uh, they were said to be limping along financially like a wounded duck. Grim, yes. What? 
Uh, yes. Like, uh, they just, they, they're, they're still going, but there's not a whole lot happening there. Um, and then in the 1830s, folks began using it to refer to politicians whose termination date was already established. So like, they're still in office, but we know they're on their way out. Now it just kind of seems like an accurate representation of what can generally be accomplished while everyone waits for the clock to wind down on a session. Yeah, it's, I hadn't actually really thought about the fact that we called it a lame duck. And like, even when you were explaining it, I was like, oh yeah, it's lame duck totally makes sense. But now I'm, but when you explained it now, I'm like, well, how many limping ducks did people see to make it like, <laughs> to, make, to make it a common, common enough occurrence that you could reference it like i feel like people have probably seen far more like limping dogs or limping horses or limping cows right it makes me think like i mean because i I know that like duck hunting was a kind of a a thing you know that's one way that they got game and it just made me think like oh their guns were not very accurate they probably wounded a lot more animals than they killed maybe Anyway, so in this year, right now, 2022, uh, from basically uh, right now when this comes out, it will be November 21st to uh, when the new Congress is sworn in early next year, um, this is basically the last chance for Democrats to try to move policy through while they hold majorities in both the House and the Senate. And it may be difficult to actually get legislation passed after that point next year. Many members of Congress are not present because of holiday commitments, because they happen to be human beings like the rest of us, right. and uh, and because of coming changes to the composition of the House. Um, there's there's much less incentive for Republican for Republicans to compromise with Democrats. They can just kind of wait it out, and then they're the party in charge. But Democrats aren't giving up yet. There are a few issues on the list for consideration this session. And they may actually achieve their goals before the year is up. Right. One of those uh, goals that they have is to pass some essential spending bills. Because Republicans will likely take control of the House in January, Democrats are eager to create robust omnibus spending packages now. Um, They also need to at least broach the subject of raising the debt ceiling. And they must pass the National Defense Authorization Act, which funds national defense spending, which is a lot more complicated than I think I realized. Um, And then, so because they need to pass that one specifically and because they really do want to raise the debt ceiling, that could result in some conflict and some compromise. We're dealing with lag issues, by the way. Yeah, clearly. (laughs) Um, And defense spending, especially right now, is particularly contentious with the ongoing, uh, we'll call it a war in Ukraine. crisis there. So that one, I'm, I'm paying some pretty close attention to that. Uh, the other, the, another thing that they really want to uh, focus on is the Respect for Marriage Act. Um, this legislation, which would provide federal protection for same-sex and interracial marriages, uh, earned the backing of 12 Republican senators along with the 50 Democrats and has moved to the next stage of the legislative process, um, which means that they has to go to the house again compromises were necessary but it's one step closer to law this is a big deal and a perfect illustration actually of why 
Democrats haven't been able to put more legislation through, even though they technically controlled both the House and the Senate. If you'll recall, it takes on paper a majority to pass legislation, but it Mm -hmm. takes 60 senators to get the legislation in front of the Senate for a vote to pass it. So you Mm -hmm. need those 10 extra people, in this case it would be 10 uh, Republicans, to say, yeah, we're going to go ahead and and allow a vote on it. And oftentimes, not always, and and it's not super rare either, they'll allow a vote on it, but they're not going to vote for it. So it's a, even though on paper you need 50 votes to pass something, in practice you need 60, 60 yeses to get something passed. Um, and I just wanted to hit that again because a lot of people I've seen and talked to, uh, especially in the last two years, but even now, um, have been like, well, the Democrats control everything. Why aren't they passing legislation? It just shows that they can't legislate. They can't uh, be in charge. And it's like, well, no, they still have to compromise with the party that has explicitly stated that they want to obstruct as much as they can. Exactly. And, you know, when you have smaller majorities, um, every person carries a lot more weight. I should point out that I said the 50 Democrats, um, that does include the independent senators. They generally vote in the same block as Democrats. So it is a little bit more convenient to just say the 50 Democrats, um, but it is Democratic senators and independent senators as well. Um, Another thing that they're hoping to accomplish is reforms to the Electoral Count Act. Congress is considering a list of reforms to the Electoral Count Act that would shore up some of the wiggle room and how federal elections are finalized. Um, So this list of reforms would remove the failed election provision, um, which basically says if for some reason an election in a state fails, then the governor can submit electors. But it didn't do a very good job of explaining what that failed election criteria would be. Um, And then it also carefully defines what counts as a catastrophic event that would extend an election in a state. It also overtly clarifies that the role of the vice president in the electoral process is to open the electoral votes so that they can be counted. That's like literally it. He doesn't qualify them. He doesn't vet them. He doesn't reject them. Um, He or she, I should say. And then it also would create a deadline by which the executive or governor of each state must certify their slate of electors. So basically, you have to certify the slate of electors by X date. No questions. You might be noticing a theme here that all of these were issues that came up a couple (laughs) years ago. In that vein, it would also make that governor's certificate conclusive in Congress on January 6th, preventing the presentation of false or alternative electors. Um, Basically, once you approve it, it's done case closed, you're not going to, like anything else is not applicable. Plus, the reforms create an an expedited, excuse me, judicial review process in case a bad faith governor submits electors that counter the popular vote. And as we head into the 2024 election, clearly this is important (laughs) and we need to get these reforms through. Yes. 
This one's going to be really interesting to see it get through. There's a House version and there's a Senate version and they differ on a few things. Um, but these are the things that they both have in common. So hopefully we can see those get taken care of before the end of the year, especially as we welcome um, more far right folks to the House of Representatives um, who would probably oppose putting some of these things in place. Um, they are also hoping to pass more aid for Ukraine, get more funding to fight COVID-19, and renew some expiring tax provisions. You know, <coughs> just some small stuff. Just some um, small stuff to get knocked out yeah. between now and Christmas. Yeah. And really, because of the holidays, because of everything that's going on, I wouldn't be surprised if practically that meant they had somewhere in the vicinity of like 14 days to actually vote and get this stuff done. Um, 14 to 21, somewhere in there. Just because some senators are going to be gone for uh, certain periods of time that will overlap with others. And it's not like they won't be in session, but there just won't be enough to have cloture. Uh, yeah. Anyway, wonk stuff. They don't have many days left, no matter how many weeks or how many actual days are on the calendar. Yeah. We'll see. They get better than bankers hours. Well, they do sometimes. I will say, I will say a lot of, a lot of Congress goes in sure at like nine, sometimes 10 o'clock, but they're often there until nine or 10 o'clock too. So that's fair. Again, I mean, some of them aren't not all of them are saints, <laughs> but it's not as, it's not as, right. as cushy as, as it seems. That's fair. That is fair. Okay, my turn. My question. I will mm -hmm. take in the news for $400. Set by Congress, this dollar figure limits the amount of money the Treasury Department may spend to honor financial commitments previously made by Congress and the President. Be -do -do -do. Robin. What is the debt ceiling? That is correct. We... Wanted to talk about the debt ceiling this week because it's coming up so frequently in the same context as lame duck and because we're creeping closer and closer to it as each day passes. Um, so here's what you need to know about the debt ceiling. The Constitution grants Congress the sole authority to borrow on behalf of the United States. And they used, or sorry, uh, 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 and they used to exercise that authority by passing legislation that allowed borrowing for specific purposes and by mandating details like acceptable interest rates, maturities, and the types of financial instruments used. As the United States began taking on more debt, Congress started giving the Treasury Secretary more freedom. Laws passed to finance the costs of World War I established the first combined debt limit or debt ceiling to cover some spending needs. By 1941, the debt ceiling concept as we know it today had been fully enacted. Right. Okay. And so despite sounding like a limit on the amount of money that the U.S. can borrow, the debt ceiling actually doesn't affect federal spending or the amount of debt that we incur. Instead, it limits how much debt the Treasury can honor. Essentially, if we make financial commitments beyond the debt ceiling and then Congress doesn't raise the limit so that the Treasury can honor them, then we'll default on those commitments. Currently, that limit is at $31.4 trillion. That's a lot of dollars. <sighs> right. 
uh, and, and we do need to raise that. Um, when the debt limit is reached, the Treasury Secretary is authorized to use what they call extraordinary measures to create some breathing room and to continue regular operations while also avoiding defaulting on our debt. Um, so these measures include spending some of the cash that we keep on hand, temporarily suspending investment of federal employee retirement contributions, and then disinvesting securities held by federal employee retirement accounts. Um, these measures are then all reversed once the debt ceiling is increased, but they are allowed to do those things to keep us afloat. Here's the thing. <laughs> Analysts had projected that we'd run out of money to pay the bills in late summer 2023, based on the list of commitments that had been made at the time. However, program and policy changes, like an extension of the federal student loan repayment freeze and higher interest rates on the debt we already owe, could increase spending and decrease the amount of revenue the government brings in. If we do enter a recession in early 2023, that would increase automatic spending on safety net programs and move us toward that ceiling faster than anticipated. How much faster? Analysts aren't sure yet, and they say they won't know until the Congressional Budget Office releases its updated baseline forecast in January. Losing the ability to honor financial commitments on a national level is a really big deal. I know that probably sounds uh, patronizing, um, and that's not how we mean it. It's just that we've never really considered the downstream and potentially long-lasting effects before. The U.S. has never defaulted on its debt. Never. And... The absolute certainty the nation would never fail to honor its outstanding bonds, the so-called full faith and credit of the U.S., underpins global financial markets. U.S. Treasury bonds are considered among the safest investments on Earth. Defaulting on our debts would likely cause interest rate increases throughout the world. Investors would demand higher rates on future Treasury bonds, which means higher cost for taxpayers, and there would be ripple effects throughout the United States and global financial systems. So why doesn't Congress just increase the debt ceiling now if we know that we're going to run out of money? Well, the answer to that is politics, of course. <laughs> Initially, the Biden administration had hoped to see legislation pass to raise the ceiling during this lame duck session. Uh, but now that Republicans know that they have the majority coming into the next session, they are much less willing to compromise to get an increase passed. Um, because again, we're not going to run out of money before January. We're going to run out of money probably early in the summer or in the midsummer. So they have a little bit of time and they're just, they don't feel the urgency to compromise and get something taken care of. Um, instead, they seem to be planning to use this as leverage to get a little bit more of what they want once Congress is back in session in January. There also doesn't seem to be much hope of moving an increase through the Senate as part of the reconciliation process, uh, which they have been able to do before, because they need 50 votes to move it through, and Senator Joe Manchin is likely to oppose the effort. Um, and then there could also be other defectors. He just really is enjoying his role as spoil sport for the Democratic agenda in the United States Senate. Yeah. Um, so likely they will just have to wait until next year and do the best to get the result that they need. Yeah, That makes me very nervous, though, because 
Republicans have explicitly said that they will hold the debt ceiling hostage in mm-hmm. order to force cuts to things like Social Security. Um, and yes. uh, what was the other thing? Was it Medicare? Um, it was a safety net program, you yeah. know, that takes care of people who can't take care of themselves. No big deal. Yeah. So basically because Republicans, for some reason, have always been anti, quote unquote, handout, uh, which Social Security, by the way, is not. It's money that you have paid Sorry. into a system and that you are being that is being returned to you with the interest that it has earned. Uh, yes. But because of that, they are using this very rare, frankly, opportunity to uh, to threaten to not raise the debt ceiling and uh, and and get what they want in the form of reductions of those those benefits um which is wild to me this is right this is let's just hold the global economy in our hands yeah so that old this people is a don't lot get any like, more money like what? Wh- yeah this is to me it's a lot like holding a grenade <laughs> and threatening to let it go if somebody doesn't let you i don't know uh have a drink i it's just like it doesn't make any sense you're gonna get what you want or you're going to blow everything up and i I mean like you heard the impacts of it you're going to not this does this won't just affect the united states it will literally have impacts around the world at this point in time might crash the global economy and plunge the entire world into a recession or depression, or, and, not or, and, while they're doing it, ruin the United States credit rating, basically. Make it impossible or make it much harder for the United States to be viewed as a reliable uh, partner in yet another way. Because this is something that has been happening to the United States over the course of the past four years, six years, is that our our cachet with the world leaders has been eroding because the previous administration and its actors have done so much to 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 damage the world's faith in the United States, and yes. that is and- directly going to impact everybody on the globe and especially your pocketbooks books a hundred percent and it is worth pointing out that um the folks who are most likely to take this kind of hold the budget um hostage approach tend to be further on the conservative side they are a little bit more to the right and this approach could actually really backfire on them it much in the same way that this election denial um party narrative backfired on them in the midterms. So because taking this kind of action will inevitably cost the United States taxpayer, um, and because it is kind of a political stunt, uh, if they do this very publicly at the beginning of the next congressional session, they do risk basically pissing off most of America that's like, listen, the government cannot default on our debt so just pass the freaking thing and don't hold it hostage it's like 
most of America understands that that's a very unreasonable position to take and a very unreasonable thing to use as a bargaining chip. So if they do decide to do that, I'm not going to say hopefully they'll be very careful. I actually hope that they completely tank it and everybody sees how ridiculous their behavior is and it completely backfires on them. Um, but that is also a possibility. It is definitely, to me, this is not execute, executing your responsibilities as a representative of the people appropriately. This is not it. You are risking the people that you are supposed to, to represent. You are risking their livelihoods and lives to do something that most of them don't even want in the first place. Because yeah. lest our politicians forget, they don't just represent the people of the party that elected them. Yep. So let us move on to the next question. It is mine now. I yes, will take it in the yours. news for 600. All right. On November 17, 2022, Nancy Pelosi announced that after her term expires in this position, she will not seek re-election for a party leadership role. Beep, beep. What is the Speaker of the House? <gasps> uh, yes, but you do need to wait for me to call on you. Otherwise. Well, there's okay. only me, Robin. Listen, only I don't me. make the rules. That's true. I'm Alex sorry. Trebek made the rules. So that means there will I'm no longer be any rules for Jeopardy. It is just a free-for-all, a just, madhouse. I don't know, man. Maya Bialka is doing a pretty darn good job. She's no Trebek, but she's doing a good job. Yeah, so we included this one here, not because we don't think that people know that the Speaker of the House is an important position or, you know, what they do, but because we don't think that it's been made clear how the composition of the House and the other leadership roles will affect the way that the incoming Speaker actually executes on their responsibilities. Um, after every election, every two years, Democrats and Republicans huddle together in a process called caucusing to choose their party leadership in the House for that term. Um, folks who are interested in the positions begin campaigning amongst their party members very soon after the election, and then elections are conducted by secret ballot. Generally, within a couple of weeks, the Democratic caucus will vote, I think, on the 30th, and the Republicans have already done theirs. Yeah. So for the majority party, which is this time the Republicans, um, those leadership rules are uh, the majority leader. The majority leader is second in command to the Speaker of the House. They schedule legislation to be considered on the House floor, organize daily, weekly, and yearly legislative plans, uh, consult with members to understand how party members feel about issues, work to advance the goals of the party just generally. Um, for the incoming House, the, uh, this will be Steve Scalise, who supported the Texas lawsuit asking the Supreme Court to intervene in the election and objected <laughs> to the certification of Biden electors from Arizona and Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. yes. They also have the majority whip. Uh, whips are responsible for assisting the party leadership in bringing the party's bills to the House floor, maintaining communication between the leadership of the party and its members, counting votes on key legislation, and then uh, maybe most importantly, persuading members to vote for the party position. They whip up support. That is actually where that came from. 
Um, Tom Emmer was elected into this role in a fierce and contentious race, um, which that feels really weird to say. But he is also a part of that hyper conservative yeah. Republican group. You know, I wouldn't be surprised knowing how some of the phrases that we use get, you know, birthed into this world. If at some point in history, the majority whip literally used a whip. Uh, yeah. And then finally, there's the caucus or conference chair. And this is the House Republican, or sorry, the House Republican conference serves as the organizational forum to elect party leaders at the outset of each new Congress. So every time we elect a new Congress, the House Republican Conference um, is the one who they elect the Republican leaders, right? The conference meets on a weekly basis to discuss party policy, uh, pending legislative issues, and other matters of mutual concern. And the chair presides over those meetings. Elise Stefanik, who is a proud Trump 2024 supporter, was chosen for another term in this role. Right. And then traditionally, this list of um, party, majority party leadership will also include the Speaker of the House. The textbook definition of the Speaker's role includes administering the oath of office to members of the U.S. House of Representatives, giving members permission to speak on the House floor, counting and declaring all votes, appointing majority members to committees, sending bills to committees, and signing bills and resolutions that pass in the House. Uh, the Speaker is also in line behind the Vice President to take office if both the President and the VP are incapacitated. And then the, the Speaker continues to serve the residents of his or her district and has all of the duties of the other members of the House, except for serving on committees and participating in floor debates. Uh, however, there's more to the rule than just what's on the box. The Speaker of the House is the most visible and authoritative spokesperson for the majority party, and the role has become increasingly partisan since Newt Gingrich assumed the position after the 1994 elections. So Gingrich oversaw the implementation of massive, massive rule changes, which he leveraged unashamedly to his party's advantage and set the hyper-partisan and aggressive tone that has carried through the role for almost 30 years. That's a long time. So long. Well, each, each party nominates a candidate for Speaker of the House. Uh, the position is elected with a simple majority vote. So generally, that means that the party with a majority will win that seat. But since it's a position that's voted on by all members of the House, it is not guaranteed that the majority party's candidate will win. Yeah. House Republicans have already chosen Kevin McCarthy as their nominee, who in the past has been closely aligned with Trump, but doesn't seem to be extreme enough to carry the support of the most right-wing members. There are concerns that he would be unable to unite the party as they try to advance an agenda and prepare for the 2024 election. The Republican majority is small enough that each party member wields almost outsized power over a piece of legislation's success. If it doesn't satisfy everyone, it's likely not going to get far. And that adds another layer of pressure to the speaker as they try to make committee assignments and manage business on the floor. Here's the thing. Just like Joe Manchin and uh, Kirsten Sinema could uphold things in the Senate, 
if they weren't appeased,、mm-hmm. pretty much. I, I mean, it, it is going to be very similar to that in the House. I think they have two hundred and twenty-two. Is that? I think it's two hundred and twenty-two to like two. Fourteen、uh, or something like that. I think that's yeah. I think that's where we are currently.、Um, which is very very narrow. Now in the Senate, it was it was it sucked for the Democrats, but it was okay because they pretty much knew that it was either going to be Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema, or or usually it was both because neither one of them wanted to be the one who axed a piece of legislation、um, because that would draw political ire down upon them. Um, but in the House, there are a much wider array of people who could spoil any particular piece of legislation now. And when it only、mm-hmm. takes four or so, roughly,、um, whoever is Speaker of the House is going to have an incredibly, incredibly difficult job. And now, yes, I mean McCarthy. I have a prediction.、Um, it was actually. Oh, what's your prediction? It's okay. I know that things are crazy.、Um, I have a prediction that the people who spent the last,、uh, well, well, probably decades, twenty、uh, years, insisting that Nancy Pelosi was incompetent or drunk or not very good、uh, whenever she was speaker.、Um, I think she was speaker for whatever.、Uh, <laughs> are about to learn just how good. She really was, because、yeah. Kevin McCarthy,、yeah. if he wins, is no Nancy Pelosi. It's very true, and and it, it was it was a it was a pretty contested election as far as like speaker nominee goes. Usually, everyone kind of agrees on who should be the boss, and and they get on board. But、um, there was another much further right. Candidate for the role, and that candidate actually drew something like thirty three, thirty five votes from the Republican conference. So, even if you think that those thirty three people are going to be the ones that hold up your legislation, if it's not right wing enough for them, if it's not conservative enough for them, I mean that's that is enough for the Republican Party to tank its own agenda with、yeah. this kind of a. Uh, split, so I don't know, man. Yeah, and so Kevin McCarthy is almost guaranteed, almost guaranteed, to have to work pretty closely with Democrats to get anything passed.、Um, and I, I, I would be surprised if we see much more than a, a handful of pieces of legislation、uh, pass through the House、uh, on a on a party line basis at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it's really going to be an interesting session. I would, I honestly, I think I'll be surprised if I if we see like one pass through on a party line basis at this point. Because if he goes to if he goes so far right that he's going to alienate, that he's going to appease the the extremists,、uh, there are a lot of moderates in the Republicans, just、mm-hmm. like there are a lot of moderates in the Democrats,、um, that just won't go for it, and they'll tank it. And it, and the same way, if he appeases the moderates, the the extremists, because they're so extreme, they'll tank it. There's such a there's a much larger gulf between the moderate. At least my perception is there's much much wider gulf between the moderate 
Republicans and the extreme Republicans than there is between the moderate Democrats and the extreme Democrats. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. And my prediction is that we will see just a lot more moderate legislation come out of this this Congress than uh, most people on that side of the fence were hoping for. Um, you know, everyone was looking forward to the opportunity to really advance the agenda. And I just I don't think that they're going to get that done, especially especially because the Democrats are going to hold the Senate. Um, and every piece of legislation that they write will pretty much have to go through the Senate. So, I mean, it'll have to. So, uh, and it's not just, it, it, there's, a, there's a, a very good possibility that not only will it have to go through the Senate, um, but that it will have to overcome the <laughs> Democratic 51 seat yeah. majority in the Senate. Yeah. So they'll have to pull two senators to make it over, to make it to pass the legislation through the Senate to get to the White House. Yeah. That is going to be stiff. It's going to be very stiff. But honestly, I think that we may see more legislation that represents the average American come out of this Congress than we have in a very long time. Oh, I agree. Because I agree. if there's going to be legislation, the passed, moderate it will be block more moderate. Yeah, yeah, it 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 will represent a bulk of American voters. I think more so than what we've seen in a, a long time. So, um, not necessarily a bad thing. No, not at all. Or at least it you has know what the else potential. Is not a bad thing. Yes, tell me. What else? What else has Firesidebreakdowns.com <gasps> is a great thing. It is our website. And on that website, you can find every episode of our podcast. You can find show notes for the researched episodes of our podcast. You can find links to our socials. And you can also find links to the most popular platforms on which you can consume our podcast, including YouTube. Um, and you will also find a link to our Patreon account so that if you enjoy this podcast and listening to us play Jeopardy, you could kick a dollar or two our way and help us buy a cup of coffee or have something to bargain with during Final Jeopardy, you know. Mm. Are you ready for some good news? I'm ready for some good news. The good news is... Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed special counsel to oversee the criminal investigations into former President Trump. <laughs> Yay! He chose Yay. Jack Smith, former leader of the Justice Department's Public Integrity Unit. Smith has been prosecuting criminal cases, including politically charged corruption cases, for almost 30 years. He worked in the office of the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court at The Hague from 2008 to 2010, and then again uh, more recently, and oversaw cases against foreign government officials and militia members accused of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. His colleagues have described Smith as meticulous and modest, which is the opposite of the man that is being investigated, and exactly what we need in this situation, if you ask me. I agree. Now, Listeners, you may be asking, okay, but why is this in the good news section? Um, and I'll tell you, uh, because this isn't just any old potential criminal case or two here. We're talking about potentially bringing a case against not 
just the former president president of the United States, but one who is particularly prone to casting anyone who doesn't give him what he wants as being an opponent or enemy and likely politically motivated. Trump's enemies are either always liberals or Democrats or rhinos, which if nobody's ever explained that to you, means Republican in name only, which is hilarious. Um, and that has let Liz Cheney has been described as a rhino by his particular base, which is the craziest thing I think anybody has ever said. Um, anyway, right? yeah. So because of these grievances of his, this has led to the perception that our institutions are actively working against Trump. And therefore, anything that they, these institutions, do cannot be trusted. So if Merrick Garland, who was appointed by President Biden as attorney general in 2021, were to be the one who is solely responsible for deciding whether or not to charge Trump with a crime, it would almost certainly be immediately dismissed as a politically motivated accusation or trial, whatever. I mean, even with the appointment of the special counsel, Trump and his base will say that, but at least it will be a harder claim to actually make. It won't stop them from making it, but it'll be harder. Ish. Right. Mr. Smith comes with a particularly unassailable background as a hard-nosed but fair prosecutor. Uh, letting a special counsel lead the investigation means that the general public, those of us who will allow facts to speak for themselves. And we mean all of the facts, not just the facts that we cherry pick because they validate our feelings. We made a whole podcast because of it. Um, can have more faith in whatever the outcome of these investigations are. Of course, Trump immediately said that the appointment was unfair, that this was an attempt to do bad things to him specifically, and that somehow this was also a politically motivated decision by the egregiously corrupt Biden administration. Right. Which strikes me as an intentional attempt to tie Mr. Smith to President Biden directly in an attempt to erode public confidence in the appointment. Uh, solid tactic, but I don't think it's going to work this time. The reality is that the White House had absolutely nothing to do with this decision. Ironically, a lot of people on the left are also upset about this. To them, it feels like Mr. Garland is delaying the administration of richly deserved justice. Um, justice. justice. Um, this seems like it will just slow things down even further. As someone with a master's in criminal justice who served as federal law enforcement and who really just likes to nerd out on legal podcasts and essays and stuff, allow me, allow me to give you something to chew on if you are one of these people. Appointing a special counsel is, in legal terms, a big fucking deal. It's right there in the paper. The term yeah. extraordinary gets thrown around a lot in these situations because it is, in fact, extraordinary. And maybe because so much of the last decade has legitimately been extraordinary, uh, the word seems to have lost some meaning, but this really is a big deal. So nothing could be further from the truth that this is going to, to somehow slow things down or means Merrick Garland isn't taking this seriously or something like that. 
You do not bring in someone from The Hague, ask them to cease prosecuting war crimes, and make sure everybody knows about it because you're worried that you don't have a case. If anything, seriously, legitimately, based on my education, my training, and my personal experience, this is a signal that things are escalating and the potential charges against Trump are very, very serious. The Department of Justice, therefore, has to take measures above and beyond their usual course of business to ensure that whatever action they take is unassailable as long as you are a good faith actor. They will, I expect, cross every T, dot every I. Their evidence will have evidence. Anything that may be remotely questionable in terms of providence will either be vetted more thoroughly than Justice Katanji Brown Jackson or simply not be used. The DOJ has exactly one, one chance yeah. to get this right. Whether they decide to pursue charges or not, they will not be allowed to forget their decision. So this is the right thing to do. And it is a good thing to do. And I am glad that they did it. And I think that's our time today. That is our time. We're going to wrap this one up. Uh, we will be back with you hopefully in a week. Uh, this one's also questionable with the holidays in there. We'll see. We'll be back as soon as we can, though. Um, until then, uh, thank you so much for your support. Something that... Uh, I think we imply, but we don't say explicitly very often. So again, thank you so much for listening, for being here. And uh, please take care of each other.